So today, I'm very excited to be talking to Dr. Charles Stewart. He spent around 28 years working with the human genome on the Wellcome Genome Campus in Cambridge, United Kingdom. He spent 22 years at the Wellcome Sangler Institute, which is where he did his PhD. He's currently the patient advocacy and engagement lead at Congenica, a digital health company that uses rapid genome analysis to investigate the genomic basis of rare diseases, also based on the Wellcome Genomes campus. His particular interest in the genetic causes of developmental and epileptic encephalopathies. Charles is the father of two children with severe neurologic disorders who have been through numerous UK-based genomic studies, although nothing has been found yet to explain their challenges. He's passionate about how patient advocacy and engagement can drive positive change for people, families, and caregivers affected by rare genetic disorders. So thanks for joining me today, Charles. That's great to be here, Tom. Thank you so much for inviting me. So yeah, maybe you could just tell us about the kind of work you've been up to. Yeah, sure. So thanks for the introduction. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm essentially a, a genome scientist um, by training. Um, uh, as, you, as you said, I've been working on the human genome for 28 years, and I've been doing that on the same campus uh, near Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Um, some people might say it's a lack of ambition that I've never moved away, but I would say that it's absolutely not. It's the most amazing work that we do, and it's on the most beautiful campus. So if you ever get a chance to visit Cambridge, you should pop along to the campus and see, see all the amazing work that we're doing. Excellent. Yeah, I might pick you up on that. Yeah, you'd be very welcome. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I started in 1994, um, really as a lab technician, and uh, I studied for my degree uh, while working there, and uh, gradually sort of worked my way up, um, working on different, different areas of the human genome, sort of putting the human genome together at first, so building the actual sequence of the human genome, and then eventually I moved into uh, bioinformatics, or uh, the, the area of of biology that that look that uses computers to try and understand genome sequences, and that's where I um, that's where I began to to look at specifically at genes on the human genome. So at this time, I, I was also doing my PhD. Um, so I did my PhD at, at the Sanger Institute. Um, and interestingly, actually, I should just say that the the Wellcome Sanger Institute is most famous for generating around one third of the human genome, which is the largest proportion of any institute around the world. Um, so we're pretty proud of that, I would say. Um, and it was 2016 that I moved to Congenica, <clears throat> and Congenica is based on the Wellcome Genome Campus, and uh, it's a, a software company that was actually spun out of a, a research project at the Sanger Institute called the uh, Deciphering Developmental Disorders Study, which used uh, genome sequencing uh, to investigate rare uh, developmental disorders in children. And we are essentially spin out of that. <clears throat> and the software we produce <clears throat> is used in the NHS, our, <clears throat> so our health care provider in, in England, um, as part of um, a big study called the 100,000 Genomes Project um, to help clinicians look at patients' genomes and to understand why they might, uh, if, if they have um, a genomic disorder or not. So, we, I mean, we work with various other, other groups as well. 
Um, but that, in essence, is what we do. We produce some software which clinicians and researchers use to investigate um, the genomic basis of rare diseases very quickly, because, of course, that's the key thing. You know, often with these rare disorders, you know, you, you need to get a, um, a diagnosis as quickly as possible because in, in, in some circumstances, particularly so things like neurological or, or SMA, um, if you intervene quickly, you can stop progression of, of irreversible disorders. Anyway, so the reason I the reason I went to Congenica was through some sort of pretty um, bad family circumstances. I would say is that my daughter, who was born in 2012, was born very premature, um, and after around six to eight months of age, she developed a really nasty type of epilepsy that caused massive developmental regression something called West syndrome or, or infantile spasms. Um, she also has severe cerebral palsy. And because of that, she was enrolled into um, genome studies in the UK, including the 100,000 Genomes Project, uh, which is it's, it's, it's the world's leading large-scale national genome project and was instigated by a guy called David Cameron, who was our ex-prime minister a few years ago. Um, and he had a son who had severe cerebral palsy and, and a, a very nasty type of epilepsy as well called Otohara syndrome. Um, and sadly, he died at the age of six. And because of that, pretty much the 100,000 genomes is, uh, is, uh, is because of, of his son. It's, it was set up because of his son. Um, so my daughter was put through this study to see if we can find anything. Nothing could be found. Um, and then my son was born. He was born even more premature than, than my daughter. And he too, um, he, he too has cerebral palsy, um, very severe. He can't talk, he can't stand. Um, and he was had his genome sequence as well. So, you know, we've put them through various different genome studies, not found anything. Um, yet, I'm convinced we'll find something soon. But anyway, the reason, um, obviously, I moved to Congenica was through my... Um, experiences of, of having you know, um, two severely disabled children and it, it meant that I could get I could use my my background uh, in the human genome to work more closely with 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 patients clinicians and researchers to you know to really bring the patient to the center of of this new and emerging or very exciting technology uh, you know it's whole genome sequencing in the clinic so that's what I do. I, I'm the patient advocacy engagement lead at Congenica, and um, I put the patient at the centre of everything we do. And I'm the voice of the patient internally to the rest of um, the members of staff at Congenica, but also I represent um, I represent the patients externally. I stick up for them. I advocate for them, and I also um, engage with them to either offer advice on scientific things or, or advocacy advocacy work um, and I also speak a lot with clinicians and researchers. It's amazing when you speak to researchers, um, the number of researchers who will sit in the basement of their, I mean this is a massive generalisation but please forgive me just for this, imagine, imagine your researchers sitting in a basement in a lab with their favourite gene or their favourite disorder and you know, their whole life's work but often that will be completely siloed from the patient and you know, it'll be a fascinating disease in the sense that you know a lot of these diseases are fascinating. They're terrible, but they're fascinating. But if you put a patient, someone with that disorder in front of them, suddenly everything changes. And then they realize, you know, it's not just an amazing project, it's actually sort of life-changing. 
Um, and I've seen that firsthand myself, you know, getting in front of people who've, who've worked, researched epilepsy and then told them stories about what we've been through. And suddenly everything changes. Comments like, God, I wish, I wish you'd been there when I was doing my PhD. Would have put it into perspective so much better. So, wow. so yeah. I really appreciate you sharing your background, your experience, and your knowledge. Um, this is such important work that you're doing, and it's interesting how your professional experience as well as your personal experience have really come together, and you can basically use the challenges that you've had in life to now move the world forward and to help others. I really appreciate that. I mean, in fact, I, as we've talked about on, on other calls, you know, at my company, we have a series called uh, Patient Point of View where we have uh, people come in and tell us about their journey. It's only for our internal company to kind of refocus us, as you kind of said, to get away from our day-to-day tasks of the work we're doing and realize you know, why are we doing this? It's to help our clients, help their patients have better lives. So, so this is fantastic work you're doing. I really appreciate that. One question I have for you is how do you think getting a genomic diagnosis can help you know, for people, first of all, but also, secondly, for caregivers, even if there's no current therapy avenues available? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, that's a really important question, I think, um, because, you know, and I, I, I've heard this, I've heard this myself, that, you know, you go to a doctor and, and you're ill and you say, can I have a, you know, can you look at my genome? They'll say, well, what's the point? You know, you can't do anything about it. What, why, why would you want to know? You know, just manage your symptoms well i mean that's you know that's one point of view but i would suggest that it's i have a different point of view and that is um it can change anything it can change everything uh let's just assume that you um you have uh, a, a type of um disorder that um if you know what the genetic cause is um and you can get it. There are treatments, simple treatments you can get in there really quickly before um, any disease progresses or any irreversible symptoms happen. And I'm talking about something like sort of Menke's uh, syndrome or SMA or even, you know, there's certain types of, of leukodystrophy, which are horrible progressive disorders. Um, if you know, if you know the genomic basis for your disorder, it's possible to get in there really quickly because some of these, you know, some of these disorders, you know, the, the damage will be done before you know what's going on. Um, and if you get in quickly, you can you, you you can essentially live a pretty good life in some of these things. So, you know, that's that's the perfect example, isn't it? Uh, you're sequenced at birth. You can find there's something wrong. You can then intervene with treatments. And even you know, if if you if you do a, what we call a newborn screen, it may be possible to pick up um, indicators that if you live your life in a certain way, you'll be more susceptible to things like heart disease or cancer. So these are useful things to know that you you, you can intervene on these sorts of things. Um, but let's say that um, let's say that you have a, a a child who has a disorder that comes back, a genetic disorder, and there isn't anything that you can do currently. Well, first of all, you can work out if your child, if your chances of having another child having the same disorder, you can work out what those chances could be because 
if your child has a de novo mutation, and what I mean by that is a mutation that occurs in the child after conception between mum and dad, um, chances are that's not going to happen again. Um, whereas if you look in mum and dad and see that, you know, you've inherited one copy of a gene from mum, one from dad, chances are, you know, there could be a one in four chance of that happening again or, or what have you. Uh, so it can impact on, you know, family planning. Um, also, it can bring around psychological closure, I think, for parents. You know, the, the idea that, you know, that parents have guilt behind a disabled child and they think it's something they may have done during pregnancy and what have you. And if you realise it's actually a genetic disorder, then that, that can bring about psychological closure. Uh, it can also inform on you know, how, how your disease might progress. Um, and, off, you know, as I say, you know, if there aren't treatments available, you can still put support in place. You, know, you, you can be best equipped for how things might adapt. But I think what's, um, what I've seen in the, patient in the patient community is that it allows you to reach out to other people via Facebook or Instagram or any of these other um, um, uh, social media channels to find other people around the world who, who have the same disorder and, and you can join together and, and build a, and gain strength from each other and you know what we're seeing is we're seeing patient groups really driving driving research driving the agenda getting together raising money uh, build generating um model organisms that you know to to investigate their disorder and you know some of them they're actually now pretty close to things like treatments uh, working with pharma so i think these are the you know the, these are the uh, incredible things that happen and, and patient advocates are the most inspired people you you'll ever meet. Nothing inspires you really as much as you having a severe disease or your child having a severe severe disorder. So I mean that there are other reasons but I, I would say that you know when you're dealing with a rare disease it's by its very name means you're very unlikely to find other people. You know 20 years ago you'd have sat at home leading a miserable life on your own without being able to get in contact with anyone but now with the internet you can do a quick google search and you can find other people We've also had a genetic diagnosis with the same disorder. And um, yeah, you, 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 you can really do great things. Hmm. Those are all great points of why you definitely want to go through and get that genomic diagnosis, even if you might not have a current therapy available. So that's a great point. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, from your perspective as a scientist and also as a patient advocate, have you seen engagement with patients and families improving the quality and relevance of the research? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to what I what I've just said. Really, um, there are some extraordinary examples of um, patient advocates. I mean, I I, I can mention a, a couple because of, because of I, I I know who they are. Uh, there's Luke Rosen from KIF One A. So he has a child with a, a mutation in the gene KIF One A, and Jeff D'Angelo, who uh, has set up a, an advocacy group called Champ One. He's got a child with a mutation champ one, and these you know these people they are they're doing extraordinary things you know they they are they they, they, they these people are not scientists they 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 came up completely different careers and suddenly now they you know they are the world leading they're the world leaders in their disorder i i mean i i I say this quite often um but if you think about pediatric neurologists and the number of disorders. They have to know intimately, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. There's no way they can know them in as much depth. You know, each one, they, they, it's just impossible for them to know in each, you know, 
in that much depth. So that in some respects, they, they're going to have to rely upon patient groups who actually understand their disorders more. And it's interesting when you also get you know, groups of patients together and they start chatting, um, it's sometimes the most extraordinary things happen. They, they discover that what they thought was just like a little mild habit at six o'clock in the evening, the other kids are doing it as well. So this might be an indicator that, you know, there's some other part of this disorder that's happening that nobody's really knowing about. Um, and by, by, by these advocates chatting together, they, they build a better picture of what it's like to live with their disease that a you know, clinician who sees them for 15 minutes or so is just not going to not going to know. I can. Yeah, that's important to know. It's interesting when we do uh, you know, patient journey work or other kind of research, we do pick up on some of these nuances that your standard physician, you know, wouldn't notice because uh, I don't have the time. Um, I'm curious, I know that recently you uh, moved, I believe, and I was also wondering, is it difficult to challenge all the demands of your career and home life and remain positive and obviously passionate about rare diseases? Yes, so um, as I mentioned, I, um, I've been working on the same campus for 28 years. Now, that's not strictly true um, because I'm actually now talking to you from the Black Forest in Germany. Uh, and we moved here three months ago um, because we, ha we have such a, a demanding, we have such a demand for uh, uh, the children because they, you know, they, they, they can't stand what have you, that um, we, we'd run out of money and run out of land at home in, in England. We, we, that was it. We were done. We had nowhere else to build for my little boy. Everything we did, we adapted for my little girl. And then my little boy came along and we just had no no means of building something or, or having a, a home that was accessible for us all. So my wife is from Germany, um, from the Black Forest. So we decided to sell up and come over here, come over here to Germany to because where houses are a lot, lot cheaper and you get a lot more land. And we've got all our family around to help us. Um, and we're going to have a. We hope we're going to have a much, much easier um time over here you know, because as the children get older they get heavier and as of course as the children get older I get older my wife get older and of course we get weaker so um it means that we're going to have a I hope it means that we're going to have a um a, an easier life because you know it's 24 hours a day this thing that this, this this struggle that we're going through and um I think it's important to have some sort of some sort of downtime and you know if if at least have the ability to sort of escape for 15, 20 minutes and have a bit of, you know, a bit of your own time and what have you. Yeah, because you're reminded of of, of the, the struggles that the, the children have when you get them up in the morning, when you feed them, when you take them to loo, you dress them, whatever, put them in their wheelchairs. And it can be relentless. So, um, I mean, obviously I'm passionate about rare diseases because, you know, that, that it's a family, it's a family thing. Um, so I don't think there's any um, any way I wouldn't remain positive about them. But at the same time, I think it's important that you can you can have a bit of life that's that's away from all of that. And I, I'm hoping that our, our our new home will allow a bit of that. Yeah, will allow easy access for the children to do whatever it is they need. 
that sounds like a wise move to me. And it uh, brings up images of, I think, like fairy tale castles and, you know, beautiful scenery. So hopefully it will turn into a, a great uh, fairy tale ending. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Wondering, you know, what excites you about precision medicine in the next, say, five to 10 years? Well, I think um, I think we've touched on on some of the areas we you know where precision medicine is already making um, a difference. But I think um, you know as, as technology um, as as we get as it becomes quicker to sequence the genome, as it becomes cheaper to sequence the genome, as we learn more about what the genome is, you know it, it will become standard practice in healthcare. Where you, well, I, I envisage a time when you go along to your, your GP and they take a blood sample, sequence your genome and return it within a matter of hours or whatever. I mean, let's not forget that you know, people like Dr. Stephen Kingsmore at Rady Children's Hospital, who holds the world record for blood to report from genome sequencing in 19 and a half hours. Now, this is already this is already a thing. Yeah, admittedly, I, I would suggest that this, you know, this, this is more of a, you know, this is what we can do rather than this is what we'd be, we can do all the time. But it proved it proves to people that you know, as a doctor, he can see a sick child in intensive care, take a blood sample, sequence it, get a result back in time for his next ward round you know, the next day, where in theory he would then be able to administer um, a specific treatment based upon the underlying genome. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing I, I would like to see. Uh, I think we'll also I think we'll also see more understanding of, of what the genome is actually involved with because at the moment if, you, if you're looking at things like genes in the genome they they account for I mean it depends how you sort of classify them as such but <clears throat> they account for sort of one two three four percent of the genome so there's loads of the genome we're not we're not sure what it does yet um, and no, nature doesn't tend to waste things. So I, I suspect they, that they, that those other regions are very important for something, whether that's for how the you know, DNA maintains its shape or it changes its shape, or perhaps how those bits of the genome are involved in turning genes on and off. Uh, because we know that not all genes are expressed in all tissues. And that we know that certain genes are turned on and off during developmental stages. So, um, you know, the gene expressed in fetus brain may not be expressed in in uh, um, elderly person. I mean, they, they, those, those are just sort of examples. And you now I think these are the sorts of things we're going to begin to, to learn more about and in you know really dig much deeper into the properties of the human genome. Excellent. Sounds like we have a lot of work yet to do, but it also seems like there's some low-hanging fruit that we could really make a difference by implementing. So it sounds like an exciting time to be alive right now. Um, now, enough about work for a minute. What do you like to do in your free time to relax and forget about work? I know you said you need to have some of these breaks. What do you do? Well, um, and I haven't been able to do this in, do this in Germany, um, sadly yet, but what I... Um, I, I suppose I was trained as a musician from a young age. I, I played the violin, the piano, and I did a lot of singing. And I, I did a lot of singing in um, in choirs in 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 Cambridge. And uh, music is is a thing I love, but singing in in choirs is something absolutely. It's my favourite thing in the world. I would say. Well, 
as a leisure activity, it's my favorite thing in the world. Because not only is making music wonderful, but it's also when when I'm singing, I can only think about the music I'm making. So all of those stresses and worries in the brain, they just go for a little while. That's because all I can concentrate on is making music. And it's it's wonderful. Afterwards, I feel kind of relaxed. So that's my thing. That's great. Yeah, I think music is an excellent way to, you know, change our mood and to uh, reset. I know often, you know, I'll be humming to myself when I'm stressed, you know, some song, typically it's a holiday tune that I learned in choir and some I find myself singing it, it makes me feel better. And I'm like, why am I singing this song? Oh, and it's relaxing me and getting me to a better place. So I appreciate that. As we're wrapping up here, I'm curious, uh, what historical figure or fictional character do you relate to or inspired by? Well, I, I don't know if you would have heard of them, but both of them are, have had a massive impact on my life. One in music, one in science. And the, the guy in music is a guy called uh, Sir Stephen Cleebury, who was my choir master at King's College in Cambridge. Um, and he gave me the most extraordinary teaching experience when I was from the age of 10 to 13. Um, and he, the, 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 the sort of training we had has, has helped me in life outside of just singing, I, I suspect. Um, very sadly, he died of cancer a, a couple of years ago, um, which is, which is yeah, well, it just goes to show that, you know, that, you know these you know, cancer, rare diseases, you know, they, they target anyone. It, that, you know, it's, it's, you're just unlucky. It's really very sad. Uh, the, the second person um, is also is a guy called Sir John Sulston, and he was the, um, the guy who led the, the British um, initiative behind the human genome project and he was based at Sanger and I knew him very well and uh, John was an, an awesome guy uh, he used to I told you I did my my degree while I was at Sanger uh, he used to sit with me in the evenings and go through my chemistry homework with me he used to help me with it uh, he won a Nobel Prize for his work with um, the microscopic worm C. elegans but he was humble enough to sit there and explain to me various very basic concepts I now realise in in chemistry and biology, uh, and, and again he very sadly he was um, he 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 died recently as well, and yeah, from, from cancer. And it's it's just you know it it makes you realise that however brilliant you are, um, you know life still has these these difficulties that that they put in front of us. So so those are the two inspiring people in my life. Um, wow. Yeah. That's great to hear that you had some good mentors that inspired you. And as you say, it's kind of sad how sometimes life uh, brings us down and you never know what's around the corner for us. But uh, it's I think those of us that are able to, you know, to be in, inspired despite of that and to you know march on passionately and help others uh, such as yourself. I think uh, it's important that we're able to do that. So thanks for sharing your, your story and your experience here. Um, I'm curious as we're. You know, wrapping up, what uh, places should people go to look for more information about you? Obviously, I can post them on my site, but anything in particular you want people to know to go find you? What? Well, yes, of course. I mean, obviously on on LinkedIn, um, that would be the best place to go. Um, I'm very open to people contacting me. So you're not trying to sell me insurance or or mortgages, which I I get a few of those <laughs> for the past few weeks. Um, 
And uh, obviously, you can read about the work I do on the Congenica Patient Advocacy webpage. But uh, yeah, sure, yeah, contact with me. Contact me on LinkedIn. Uh, should be easy to find. Charles Stewart, um, working at Congenica and the Welcome Geno Campus. Excellent. Thank you. I'll make sure to post those on my site. And thank you so much for being a guest today. It was a real pleasure. I appreciate all the work you're doing. Uh, you, you seem like not only a great scientist, uh, a great uh, advocate, as well as a great parent. So, I mean, I just applaud you and thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us please check out medtechchat.com for more podcasts and blogs. See you there.